We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now save $30 on the American-made steel FS56 RCE trimmer. Real steel. The FS56 RCE is made in America of U.S. and global materials. Offer valid through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue-colored glasses. This week, we'll be talking, well, of course, USA, Mexico, and obviously the continuation of the World Cup qualifying process for the U.S. men's national team. World Cup qualifying in general, whether it's Comnibol or CONCACAF or anything else out there, we'll be talking, let's see, The Wire, VAR, Bruce Arena, and so much more. But first joining me, as always, is my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a fox, uh, what are you? You're a fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. How are you, Mossy, on this Monday, November 15th in the year? 2021 late again huh are you gonna throw your kids under the bus this time uh i it's it's a long story i'm not gonna tell it here um but this will be dealt with and this will be dealt with severely okay so just know know that uh know that this is that i'm not happy all right but i am a professional i'm not gonna let it impact the ability to give you a interesting entertaining state of the union podcast Lex, it's been a roller coaster last few days for me because my life ebbs and flows on your text messages about the wire. There are some that I interpret as, oh, he's starting to like it. And then there are others that are very negative. So let me know where you're at in terms of the number of episodes and where you're at in terms of your enjoyment of the show. Okay. So specifically when it comes to the wire, and for those who don't know, this is a uh, aughts. So 2006-ish type of, you know, through the through the, uh, the early 2000s there, um, episodal thing that happened i think it was always been on hbo right correct Um, and five seasons worth i am in the third season right now and it's a gritty um police drama shall we say based in uh baltimore and uh if you were to base baltimore off of the wire you would think that all anybody does there is uh, drink do drugs have sex and be ugly and corrupt. And we know that Baltimore is much more than that, but obviously that's what <laughs> this, this focus is on. I'm in the third season, as I mentioned. Um, as I mentioned last week, first season I really enjoyed, um, although I'm not sure that it that it holds up as much as, as, as you think. Um, second season, I, I, 
I can't believe that that was the second season and that there were more seasons after it. I like if I had seen that in in real time, that that was what the second season was, I would have said, well, they've lost the plot. These writers don't know what's going on. They went on a complete tangent right off the bat and they killed the golden goose and we're going to shut it down. Evidently, they said, no, we're going to keep it going for five seasons. So I'm now I'm in the third season, which is better. And I think it's maybe a a return to what makes it good. Um, I the, the jury is still out for me. Um, I am watching it out of respect and just, you know, that this this thing that lives inside me that it, even if it's bad, I still have to watch it. So uh, that's where I am at right now. That's not a ringing endorsement, but there are there are portions of it. It, it just gets. And and here's the thing. When I binge these things, I wholly and un, uh, recognize that I may be seeing it and digesting it in a way that it was not necessarily intended, where it was week after week after week. And maybe some of that colors the way uh, that I am uh, you know, looking at this series right now. Maybe if it was spread out and I had time to digest the episode and look forward to that episode, it would hit me in a different, uh, different way. So anyway, that's where I am. Uh, season two is very polarizing. Is it? Uh, the travails of Frank Sabadka on the docks. Uh, not everybody was interested in that. They preferred, you know, let's get back to the street stuff with Avon and Stringer who, and all that. Who in the writing room came up and said, let's go to the docks? Like that, that anyway. I, I don't want to put this in your head, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, season three is my favorite. Three and four, I think, are generally considered the best seasons. So okay. if we get okay. through four and you're still not loving it, then I don't think it's going to be then season not, five. It it's might not be for you. me. Okay. All right. All right. Cool. Well, that's, that's good to know that it, it swung back in now, that. Now, Sopranos, you thought, was complete and utter garbage. Yeah. The Wire is not that. You're, no, you're, no. you're underwhelmed. But I enjoy this more than I did The Sopranos. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, although there is, there is, there is more redeeming parts of the characters um, and, and look, I, I love a good villain and I love a good bad guy out there, but I just think that I'm, I find myself caring about some of these characters more. Now, don't get me wrong. A lot of them are pieces of, you know, what, um, in, in so many <laughs> different ways. Uh, and, and I also, I also wonder when people get credit for depicting a situation, how much of it is real and how much of it isn't how much of it is when people that do live in that situation whether it's uh, in this case it would be uh, police department um, and uh, the drug element down there how many of them look at it and say i can relate to that and how many of it is well a lot of it is stereotype but how many how much of it is exaggerated and, and wildly exaggerated stereotype type in that i mean like the amount of drinking scenes in this uh, in this wire series is you would think that that's all they do is sit around and get drunk constantly on duty off duty just they don't have any time to sleep because they're all they're all drinking um which which i mean it's, it's not a judgment on on who they are but you can't get anything done like that do you have a favorite character so far are you a bunk McNulty, avon stringer omar guy any of those people uh Omar fascinates me because I, I listen. I am not from that that world, but it it it's hard for me to believe that he would ever exist, um, not exist or survive. That he would survive this long. I mean, he seems to have a force field around him, uh, even though he loves killing people and and stealing uh, from people. As he explained in court, his occupation is 
I rip and run. That's a, <laughs> I can't believe you're quoting this um, stuff. One last thought. I, I texted you this. I think it's an interesting enough point to make uh, on the pod. Uh, it's always fascinated me how Michael B. Jordan appeared in all of like eight episodes as Wallace. Mm -hmm. gets killed off. Spoiler alert, but I, the show went off to you like 15 years ago, so I'm sorry, <laughs> folks. I'm not going to worry about spoiler alerts. Um, and yet he's the guy that parlayed that show into the most successful career is now this phenomenal actor and big movies and all I that. I will say that, that, that there are shock type of moments where you think a, a, a person, a character is going to be around for the long haul and next thing you know, they're out. And, you know, whether they wanted more money or they had another movie to do or, or, or whatever it is. They do cultivate this dynamic where nobody's safe. Right. And that Watching is The Sopranos, yes. you knew like season three, Tony Soprano is not going to die. Right. The, the Wire, nobody feels safe. Exactly. So I do, I did li I do like that part of it in that anything can happen. Um, all right. What else? Did you see anything uh, this week? I finished uh, Narcos, okay. uh, the final season. I've been texting with Keith Costigan. He has one episode left, I believe. I'm waiting for him to be done where we can really uh, dissect it together. Um, and another strong night uh, on HBO, Succession and Curb. I enjoyed those uh, their episodes very much. Uh, one note on Curb. I did have a question to ask you. Um, your wife, mm -hmm. uh, did she watch all the previous seasons or just picked it up now? No, she, it's not as if she just found it now. So she, but I don't think that she is a diehard seeing, uh, seen every season and every episode, but she's certainly seen Curb Your Enthusiasm. And, and as you know, it, it took a, a lengthy hiatus and then kind of came back into people's consciousness. On Friday night, I went out to dinner with my buddy Dan Houtman and we discussed the fact that we're both Curb fanatics since the beginning. And we, he agreed with me that this season, first couple of episodes were okay, nothing special. And I mentioned, boy, you know, Alexi's wife is loving it. And so not on the same page there. And he wondered, he said, well, maybe she should go back and watch the, the seasons two, three, four, which are considered the peak of that right. show. By that logic, she would, if she loves this, then she's, you know, she'll be, you know, out of her mind uh, watching the, the, the early days thing. So maybe she will do that. But no, she had, had seen it before. And it, like I said, it, there was a push, there was a marketing push, it's back and all that kind of stuff. So she came to it from a consistent basis uh, rather late. All right, anything else, Mossy? That's it. I mean, listen, this is this is a big week uh, with USA Mexico. So uh, you ready to light this candle? Let's do it. All right, as you know, each and every week, we kick the pod off with Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. Yes, it's time for my State of the Union, where I look at a part of the game from an American perspective. And this week, a very special week, it goes a little something like this. American soccer, we eat our own. There is fair and warranted criticism of Greg Berhalter as the U.S. men's national team coach, but much of the consternation is often relative to subjective personnel decisions. The formula goes something like this. I think this player should play. Greg Berhalter plays someone else. That particular team or player struggles. Therefore, I'm right. Berhalter's wrong. But on Friday night in Cincinnati, Greg Berhalter pretty much got everything right. While he was booed before the game, he then went out and proceeded to beat Mexico for the third time in six months. Oh, and all against the Mexican coach, Tata Martino, that many wanted and still want over Burhalter. Like Bonnie Raitt saying, I can't make you love me if you don't. Seems that for many Burhalter critics, rather than give the man his credit for his undeniable success, even begrudging credit, instead, his success is now conveniently framed as happening in spite of Burhalter. He's just a blind squirrel that finally stumbled across a nut. Add in some tinfoil conspiracy theories of mandatory MLS player quotas, and it's hard to see Burhalter ever being universally loved. But what's sad is that this is not surprising. 
Burhalter, to many, is another man in the mirror, a young, domestic, unsexy, unproven American coach incapable of getting the best out of a golden generation of U.S. talent. He reflects our legendary inferiority complex and insecurities. American soccer, we eat our own, and we're always hungry. All right, Mossy. So there is my State of the Union. And this is maybe the, the second in what will maybe be a trilogy or an ongoing type of episodal <laughs> State of the Union, where I, at least on the surface, um, defend Greg Berhalter. And once again, uh, as I've said time and time again, this is not a, um, a, a blind faith type of response to Greg Berhalter. I just... It, it, it became very apparent to me over the last couple of days, and certainly uh, being in Cincinnati, I was in Cincinnati for the U.S.-Mexico uh, game, that uh, the, the Greg Berhalter doubters um, continue, and I don't think this has necessarily changed their, their tune, but I, I don't understand. Well, I understand a little bit, and I explained a little bit in the State of the Union where it where it comes from. And look, there's so much more to talk about than just Greg Berhalter. But this is this is part of the team, and this is part of that narrative and part of that story of this team. Is this, as I said, young, relatively inexperienced American coach manager taking over this team at a time unlike any time in our past relative to the amount of talent that we have. And he's also taking it over at a time where everybody has a megaphone and everybody has a platform from which to scream and yell with the advent and the evolution of, of social media. And so, you know, maybe it's just louder now than it ever, than it ever has been. But I also think that it's not necessarily uh, going to change regardless of what happens, even if they blaze through and continue on this path and qualify for, uh, for the World Cup. Is, first off, is that, is that fair? Am I living in a, in a vacuum, in a void, in, a, uh, in an echo chamber? And am I, do I not have my hand on the pulse of what is going there? And I'm not saying look, there's plenty of Greg Berhalter um, uh, fans out there. Um, and maybe even some that have changed their minds since he first uh, first took over. But is this is this worthwhile pointing out from? Yeah, I think the point you're making is not unique to U.S. fans, sports fans in general. It seems when they make up their minds about a coach, uh, it's very hard to get them to admit that they're wrong. But how you could not give Greg Berhalter credit after this game is really beyond me. I don't mean I don't know if you want to get into the match, but yeah. Um, yeah, we definitely have to get in, get into the match. All right, let's 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 weave Greg Burhalter into all of this because obviously it is because of him, in terms of the decisions that are made, that ultimately resulted in what I, what I think is one of the great performances in U.S. men's national team history. I thought the U.S. played great. I even liked the first half. There seems to be this narrative out there that it was a really shaky first half, and he had to make all these adjustments. I don't uh, think that did. I don't agree with that. Especially, at all. I, I mean, thought, I think that is a fair criticism of Greg Berhalter is to say that the team at times has started poorly and he has had to fix mistakes and and for people to say he shouldn't put himself in that place in the in the in, in the first place. I will look at this and to your point, I thought the first half 
okay, we didn't have the, the goals that were scored. And yes, Mex it's Mexico, by the way, a very good team. They're going to be opportunities for the, the opposition. But I didn't feel like Greg Berhalter went into the locker room and said, boy, I really screwed that up. I really got to fix something. Yeah, I thought from the start of the game, the U.S. was the aggressor on the front foot. The flow of the game was in their favor. Yes, Mexico had a couple of great chances on the counter, that breakaway with Lozano where Stefan denied him. And then that other player where Lozano floated a beautiful ball to Jesus Corona, who shanked the volley. So... Based on those chances and the stats were pretty close, you can conclude that the first half was even. But even going into the break at halftime, it just felt to me like the U.S. was the more confident team. Mexico seemed very uncomfortable in that game. And then it became even more pronounced in the second half. The U.S. took complete control, started creating chance after chance, scored two goals, could have scored more. It was one of the more commanding U.S. victories over Mexico I can ever remember. I think it was way more significant than the two wins this past summer in terms of really laying down a marker in that rivalry. The two games this past summer were great. The Gold Cup win even left some people in tears. Uh, but those still followed the traditional U.S.-Mexico pattern of Mexico looking like the more cultured team on the ball and the U.S. relying on grid and set pieces, etc. That's not what happened here. The U.S., yes, they played with a lot of grit and toughness, but also showed tremendous technical ability. They looked like the more talented team, which... If I'm a Mexican that's not in a state of denial right now, I would be mortified by that game because it really makes me wonder where this rivalry is headed with the caliber of players the U.S. is producing. And to bring it back to Greg Berhalter, to me, that was Berhalter's vision really being realized. Like I said, in the, in the two previous U.S.-Mexico games, he had to adopt slightly different approach than mm -hmm. you know he really wants to. But that's exactly the type of soccer that he wants the U.S. to play. And we saw it, and it worked, and, and they were phenomenal. So hats off to him and the team. I mean... First off, it was in a um, obviously an incredibly pro-U.S. environment, and uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to go to Cincinnati was, you know, for a number of reasons, uh, not the least of which is we don't know when we are going to see this type of thing happen again with 2026 and the way the world and, and the you know World Cups are evolving and um, with more teams going to the World Cup, and so this might be the last time we see it right now. Uh, U.S. Mexico is not going anywhere; it's still you know, going to bring up emotions and get people excited, but it's, you know, it's not going to be your, your parents, uh, us, Mexico, uh, going forward. Um, the stadium there is awesome. Uh, downtown stadium. We walked from our hotel to the stadium. It was uh, percentage wise. I think a lot of people were predicting what was the percentage wise. And I think it was probably 80, 20, um, in, in favor of the U S and, you know, the, even the way that they lit the place with the red, white, and blue, it rained. Um, it was just a, a beautiful night and obviously an, an incredible performance, uh, to your point. A couple of specifics when it comes to Greg Berhalter's choices. You know, we've talked about the goalkeeping situation with Matt Turner and Zach Steffen. He made it very clear a couple, actually a couple of days before the game that he was going to start uh, Zach Steffen. That in and of itself is an interesting choice given what Matt Turner has done. Having said that, we know that Zach Steffen is one of Greg Berhalter's guys, and I can't, I can't fault him in that. It's, I, I think that Matt Turner is is a, is a great goalkeeper, and I would have started Matt Turner. Having said that, I think we're good either way. We didn't win, lose, play well, or not play well relative to Zach Steffen. However, he did make the saves, and a couple of very good saves. There was one that came through a bunch of legs and, and a forest, and he saw it at the last minute uh, in that first half, both in the first uh, in the first half. So he did what he needed to do. And when it comes to playing out of the back, which the U.S. did, uh, he had some wonderful passes uh, out of the back. And at times got, interestingly, very pragmatic when, when needed. 
This was a battle of two teams that played out of the back. This was so such a modern day game of soccer in tactically the way that they played. We would play out of the back and they would high pressure us. They would play out of the back uh, and we would high pressure uh, pressure them. And so basically it was a it was a game of chicken and whoever, you know, flinched ultimately lost. But each and every time you play out of the back, it was high pressure. At some point, somebody has to hit a long ball. I got excited even in the first minute when the U.S. pressured Mexico. That long ball came because there was nothing else to do. And uh, Walker Zimmerman, who I thought had a really, really good game for the U.S. in the back, won that ball uh, you know, in the first minute of the game. And that was a great battle uh, in the back there. Um, other, uh, other standouts. Um, I thought that Ricardo Pepe up top, uh, who we know were riding that train, even though he didn't score, I think this was his best performance not scoring. <laughs> because there's times where we've seen him just go away. And um, unless he has that goal, you're saying, well, what was going on? There's times where you're saying, you got to take him out. This isn't, this isn't working. I think some of his holdup play and some of his, uh, his movement up there, even though he didn't score, was incredibly valuable. So that's good to see going forward because it's, he's not always going to score, but he can't be invisible. He has to make himself... Uh, he has to make an impact even when he's not scoring. So I thought, I thought that was good. Um, let's see other people. Robinson out there on the left hand side. Anthony Robinson. Uh, Robinson. Terrific. I really, think. you think? Yeah. I completely. Wow. Really. I, I, I'm not saying that there aren't terrific. Not only terrific times. There are world class times. Like he will. There was one point he brought a ball down, 60 yard ball in the air, going 100 miles an hour, and he brought it down with a smoke and a coffee. <laughs> and then the next minute. He looks like Bambi stumbling around the field or, or a newborn colt stumbling around the paddock who, who can't, who still hasn't figured out how his legs and appendages work. It's, it's mind boggling. Well, so, so that's the way that I look. I'm not sold yet on him. I thought uh, the both U.S. fullbacks, Yedlin and Anthony Robinson played well, but maybe I'm grading them on a curve comparing them to Mexico's fullbacks who were absolutely awful, right. especially at right back. I know we're going to get into Chaka Rodriguez later talking about the Aronson incident, but I, I, I called him out after the Nations League final. I thought he was the goat uh, of that loss because of the corner kick he needlessly gave away late in the second half. That like goat in, bad, not goat good, right? Yeah, it's interesting how that, that term changed, has huh? changed it's in amazing, the last... Yeah. And I, I credit LL Cool J with that. He released an album called The Goat in 2000, and that seems to have entered the lexicon now as a good thing to be the goat. Don't but, call it a comeback. Yeah. Right. Um, I, he is like Chaka Rudger, one of the worst players I've ever seen in my life. I mean, he was Damn. just a disaster in this game. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, so, yeah, so perhaps I'm overrating a little bit the U.S. fullbacks because I'm comparing him to Mexico's, but I thought, I thought Robinson, I liked his performance better than you did. Uh, and uh, in terms of standouts, you know, when we look at this generation of U.S. players, uh, the five that people tend to single out are Pulisic, McKinney, Adams, Reyna, and Dest, so mm -hmm. probably because they play in the more right. glamorous clubs. But Yunus Musa oh, and Timothy Weah belong game. right up there now when we talk about this generation of young American players taking European soccer by storm. Those two guys are phenomenal. Musa, that, that midfield three the U.S. has now with Adams, McKinney, and Musa is, is terrific. Uh, Weah was excellent. Aronson keeps emerging to the point where I'm wondering about Gio Reyna, who I think might have the highest yeah, upside of every U.S. You, player. Marcy. Thank and you. And <laughs> he has work to do to get back into the I, starting lineup. I, where is this? Where? Why have we gifted Gio Reyna uh, the uh, uh, the uh, the starting position already? I mean, well, first off, we haven't seen it. So no matter if he's not there, he's obviously not. He's not playing. And, and look, he's he, as you said, he's a wonderful player with wonderful upside. But he's still 
he still has a lot of work to prove that he is deserving of the anointment that kind of has already happened, even though he hasn't really you know, fulfilled anything. Um, to your point about Musa, God, what I think this was one, one of his great performances. He His first look is always forward when he has the ball. His ability to turn out of in pressure and out of pressure uh, and uh, on a dime. His, his physical ability to stave off tackles um, and to take take hits uh, was just it was fun to see I mean he he brought it all together in 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 the way that we wanted uh you mentioned Weston McKinney who obviously scored a goal which was which was great I mean he got a little lucky the thing bounced off and and he put it away nicely Weston McKinney is an interesting one because if Weston McKinney wasn't playing at Juventus I think that the assessment of him would be very, very different in that at times Weston McKinney is incredibly sloppy. At times Weston McKinney is still incredibly immature in the way that he, the decisions that he makes, whether it's the soccer decisions or from a disciplinary (laughs) decision when we saw off the field what happened last cycle, but even on the field getting a yellow card, didn't need to get the yellow card. I know we scream and yell and you you make a point and you defend your players, but now you're out the next uh, next game. If you're going to get a yellow card and miss the next game, then it should be worth it. Uh, but but I'm still uh, but I still find myself saying I'm still here for him. You know, I think his personality. Don't underestimate the the impact and the power of a powerful personality, which he certainly does. The way that he holds himself, um, I think he harkens back, and and I think he reminds people a lot of some of the Americanness that we have had in the past. So I think he, he gets that, uh, that benefit of the, uh, of the doubt. Um, let's see who else. Uh, and then, you know, we talked about Greg Berhalter and the decisions that he made the way a decision obviously paid dividends. We last week, uh, you know, I had said I, I would start Christian Pulisic. Greg Berhalter says, you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, we're not going to start Christian Pulisic and we're going to keep him not just on the sideline, but we're going to use him from a psychological perspective, getting up, warming up. People know it's happening. People see it's happening. When I say people, not just people in the stands, but Tata Martino and company down there seeing it's happening. And, you know, he used him to the greatest effect. He comes in, barely touches a ball, and his first touch basically is in uh, the back of the net with a diving header on a, uh, on a near post run and obviously impacted the game. And then he lifts up his jersey and he has that man in the mirror uh, written in, in his undershirt there. Uh, what about that whole storyline? I mean, uh, Ochoa says that in a press conference leading up to the game. Uh, Greg Berhalter, he called him out for it, and it, they clearly use it as bulletin board material. Uh, what did you make yeah, of that? Yeah, I mean, I always, I'm always interested in how many games we may have seen where there were messages that were obviously thought out ahead of time and printed or written that never actually get used, right? Um, because you lost or you didn't score or whatever ended up uh, ended up happening. That it was bulletin board material, I, I, I don't care. I mean, like Ochoa, if I'm Tata Martino, I, I'm not going to Ochoa and say, why the hell are you doing that? I mean, I do think you kind of have to read the room and understand that you haven't beaten this team in the last uh, couple of games. And so what are you... What are you getting out of doing something like that? You're you're poking a bear. You're poking a bear. <laughs> and that bear has, you know, kicked your ass now the last couple of games. And so, you know, if you're doing it before the um, 
you know, a game at Azteca, maybe it's a little bit different. However, I I will agree with him in that our identity absolutely, especially over the last couple of decades, has been relative to Mexico. And when I say our identity, not just our identity as a U.S. men's national team, but our identity as a as a soccer playing nation, and this compare and contrast that we constantly have done with Mexico, the the gap that supposedly was there, then it wasn't there, and it's back and forth, the lobbying and the recruiting of soccer players. I mean, with with Mexico has made us better. And without um, without Mexico, I don't think we are where we are. And so in, in that sense, I understand a little bit about what he is saying, but it for a mature player and an experienced player, it it was it was probably not advisable. Yeah, I don't want to be too hard on Mexico because I, I I love that country. But I, to me, that those comments reflected a certain delusion in, uh, on the part of Mexico about who they are. Uh, they they like to project this image of being this big bad soccer nation, and and the the numbers just don't back it up. If you look at this rivalry the last thirty years, the U.S. has a decided edge head to head. They've been farther to a World Cup than Mexico has, reaching the quarterfinals in two thousand two. Uh, in terms of gold cup titles, it's eight to seven Mexico, you know, Mexico has some things, you know, the Olympic gold medal, 2012, the confederations cup title. If you hold up the two resumes the last 30 years, I'd probably take Mexico's, but not by that much. I think the, I think Mexico and the U S are generally around the same place in terms of their standing as soccer nations. And the question is, which one has that potential to go that next step and become elite and be able to be a contender for world cup titles and win world cups. And to me, all signs right now point to the U.S. having that greater upside and that greater potential to get there. So I don't know. Mexico can keep sort of carrying themselves like they're this big, bad team that the U.S. is aspiring to become. I think the U.S. is aspiring to be way more than what Mexico is right now. Well, who knows if they'll get there and it's going to take time and probably a few more cycles. But you know you know what I'm saying? I, I, I don't know. But to me, those comments just seemed a little bit delusional. Right. Right. I mean, we own them. <laughs> any way you slice it uh, right now. And the pendulum can can swing and we could both qualify for the World Cup and the U.S. could bomb out of the World Cup and Mexico could actually get that that fifth game that they've been uh, trying to get to and they could go on to great things. And then this is just, you know, one of those days. And so things change very, very, uh, very, very quickly. But but to your point, they are you know, Mexico's the the old school of CONCACAF, and we've used the last few decades to really chip away at it, and I think surpass it. I think that the U.S. is the best team in CONCACAF um, for a number of different reasons, and that's just it's not just the results. I think that depth that we are talking about, the evolution of the game on and off the field, the progression, the pathways, all of the, the development uh, of our youth, and by the, by the way, when it comes to Mexico now, you know, they have to come to us. They are recruiting and recognizing that their future and their talent depends heavily on them being able to recruit Mexican-American players that we have developed over here in the United States. So even from a cultural perspective, the soccer culture that exists, and it's evident by what Mexico is doing, is... As good, and in many cases, I would say uh, I would say better. So, you know, Mexico, I I, I enjoy beating Mexico, but I also recognize that we uh, that we need them. Um, the uh, you know the Burhalter 
thing to get back uh, to uh, to that. Do you think that this changes anybody's view on Greg Berhalter going forward? Like you say, there are some people that are just never right. going to give him credit. But I think with each passing victory over Mexico, each notch on his belt, winning this trophy, winning that, he starts to win some people over. Where I think his approval rating today has to be much higher than it was a few months ago, I would think. So, how, I mean, how good is he? Is he... Is he world class? I mean, is he someone that uh, you know a a European team would would look at? Yeah, I, I'm a big fan. Okay. Uh, ever since he took over, I've liked. I, you know, I I'm a sucker for tactics wonks, and I, I could tell that he's a real tactics oh, wonk. Yeah. And and uh, so and, da- and data. I mean, he 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 even as at his press conference, he's reading off of the sheet in terms of the possession, and we did this and stuff like that. What about the other side? What about uh, Tata Martino? You think he's in trouble? Because we're recording this on a Monday. Obviously, the, the, the second of the two-game cycle here Which happens is dangerous. tomorrow. We're, we're, we're gushing right. about the U.S. We're right. crushing Mexico. By the time people listen Things to this podcast, Mexico wins 3-0 away to Canada. The U.S. lays an egg against Jamaica. Yeah, but <laughs> but, why are you always glasses uh, half empty? Because saying. the U.S. could be not only in first place, but Mexico could actually be in fourth place, <laughs> given what Panda. So all sorts well, of crap could so happen by the time you're listening to this. Because I was... I was in, I, listen to a lot of Mexican media stuff leading up to this game. And two things. First of all, this effort to try to poo-poo these U.S. players in Europe, they even used the Danny Alves thing as evidence that Sergio Dest hasn't really panned out there. And, oh, and Pulisic barely plays, which, you know, is it's mostly because of injury, but they tried to act like he, you know, uh, and, and Gio Reyna hasn't been that great. And this one, there, there's really this effort okay, in the but, Mexican but media do, to try there to is a, poo-poo. There is a story and a point to be made, and we don't, we, we, we tend to overlook it, that at a moment when a U.S. player is playing at Barcelona, it's at Barcelona's worst that we have seen in a long time. <laughs> and by the way, the same thing goes with Juventus. Okay. Right. But I just thought it was that dynamic is interesting where they're clearly sure, annoyed sure. at all this okay. buzz that U.S. players are attracting for by going to Europe. And so they're trying to poo-poo it. But the second thing was uh, uh, to hear the Mexican media tell it heading into the game, Tata Martino is not in any kind of trouble. The goal is to qualify for and do well in the World Cup. Mexico was in first place in the octagonal heading into this match. They were unbeaten. And so everybody said, oh, even, even if he loses, it's not the end of the world. You know, be, because Mexico has had this uh, itchy trigger finger for several years and made lots of changes. We tend to assume that every time they have a bad loss, they're going to change managers. It seems like with Tata, they're trying to be more patient. Uh, but this loss was so bad that now the narrative has changed after the game. And now they, they are, it sounds like, seriously contemplating the possibility of having to make a change. Uh, from what you read, if they were to lose to Canada, there's a real chance he would lose his job. They're already lining up Ignacio Ambriz as a possible replacement. Nacho Ambriz? Former Mexican international. Scored a Roberto Carlos-esque free kick uh, in the 93 Gold Cup final at Azteca, I believe you're on the wall. I was for on that the wall. Kick. Yeah, <laughs> Didn't do our job. Mexico that's for sure. Win. Um, and successful coach, just won recently the Liga Mex title with Leon, coached America before that. Um, so supposedly he's the guy they're lining up as a possible replacement, depending on what happens here against Canada tomorrow night, which already reading some of the articles about what that would mean. Supposedly he's not big on the naturalized citizen. So somebody like Rogelio Funes Mori might be in some trouble if Ignacio well. took over. But so, you know, it, it does seem like Tata is under some real pressure here. All right. So uh, you mentioned some other games uh, that are that are going on, including Mexico going up to Edmonton and we saw snow there. I mean, Canada is doing what you need to do is put yourself in the best possible and most advantageous uh, and, uh, position and have a competitive advantage. Uh, so what happens up there in, uh, in Canada? 
Uh, I like Canada. Canada's good, man. Yeah. They are, they are good. I'm, now, I'm excited. <laughs> like the U.S., they benefited from Kaylor Navas not being in the Costa Rica goal yep. the other night. Yep. But but yeah, no, we've talked about Canada and Davies and Jonathan David and Tejan Buchanan. They've got some real talent up there. And yeah, I, I, I like them to get a result against Mexico and heap even more pressure on Tata Martino. Yeah. And then... Um, U.S. We uh, we mentioned obviously coming off of a of an incredible win over Mexico, and Greg Berhalter's back in this situation where he has to get people focused that that's done. Janet Jackson, what have you done for me lately? All that kind of stuff. And if he were to follow it up with a bad performance against Jamaica, all of that goodwill and all of that stuff that we're talking about right now, it wouldn't completely be out the door, but it would dampen the the spirits. Having said that, they're, they're going to the office down there in Jamaica. It is a, it's not an empty office, but it is a very vacant office relative to games that we have seen in the past. So the environment down there is not going to be hostile. It's not going to be problematic for this U.S. team. And while Jamaica is better, than uh, than they have been. This is not Mexico. This is not a team that the U.S. should fear. As a matter of fact, I want to see this U.S. team go down to Jamaica and be incredibly professional and be incredibly ruthless with all of this talent that we have. And Greg Berhalter made a point even before the Mexico game of saying this isn't a three-game window. This is a two-game window. So I'm if you play well, I'm for you know I'm paraphrasing here. You can see a continuation of players. Now we know he has to couple, make a couple of chases because of red cards and uh, yellow card situation, but he's got plenty of talent. That's what we've always talked about. So it's going to be a very strong team that is facing uh, Jamaica. You think? Uh, you think Christian starts? No, um, I think Berhalter feels like for this window, having him as a super sub for both games, it worked out well the other night. So he'll probably repeat that formula. What do you think? Yeah, probably. I mean, because also in that way, you you keep the relationship with Chelsea. Not that he should necessarily care, but it does matter. Now, you said you would have started Turner uh, mm-hmm. against Mexico, but you're also not big into rotating. No, I don't like rotate. So now stick with Stefan if you started. Him Life in. isn't fair and soccer isn't fair, my friend. So whether you got Wally pipped or whether, you know, Greg Berhalter just woke up one day and said, I'm starting uh, Zach Stefan. Hey, I don't change it. Panama, by the way, had this miraculous comeback win against Honduras. They yep. now host El Salvador. They're emerging as a solid fourth there. We've talked about the big three being mm-hmm. U.S., Mexico, and Canada, but Panama's starting to create some separation there for fourth. So it's interesting how and, Han- and Honduras, who I I thought they they were actually a good team coming to this. I mean, they have completely you know at the bed uh, when it comes to the uh, the octagonal. Uh, okay. Anything else? Uh, Concacaf big picture there. I mean, I think we've 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 covered this. As I said, we are, we are recording this on uh, on a Monday, so you may be uh, hearing this before the U.S. Jamaica game uh, or after the U.S. Jamaica game, and the way that we are talking about it might might change. That's kind of what happens. Uh, anything else, Masi? That's it. All right. Let's uh, take a real quick break. And when we come back, we'll take a trip around the world because there was all sorts of World Cup qualifying that continued on apart from uh, CONCACAF. So don't go away. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now save $30 on the American-made steel FS56 RCE trimmer. Real steel. The FS56 RCE is made in America of U.S. and global materials. Offer valid through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. 
All right, we're back. And uh, with the international window, obviously it wasn't just CONCACAF that was playing. The rest of the world was playing, trying to secure their seats for the uh, World Cup in Qatar, which we are almost starting this Sunday. Uh, if you're listening on this uh, Sunday, then we are a year out from the World Cup in Qatar, which for those that don't know, is happening in November and December of 2022. So where do you want to start here? You want to start with the, I guess, biggest game and result? Yes, let's start okay. in Europe. And for folks that don't know the way it works in Europe, it's 10 groups. The uh, 10 group winners qualify automatically, and then they take the 10 second place finishers, uh, along with the two highest place finishers from the last Nations League that didn't finish in the top two in their groups. And that gives you 12. And then they'll have a draw. Well, they'll, they'll set up three four team brackets where you'll have a semifinal and final one-off matches and then the three teams that come out of that combined with the other 10 that gives you the 13 european nations that will be at the next world cup oh that's clear <laughs> <laughs> no um, you made it you, you you made it in you know it, it's it's complicated um the big story is that cristiano ronaldo might uh miss this world cup uh, which this would be an all-timer for me because as our good friend Tony Gibroni reminded us on Twitter this morning, I've been carrying on about Portugal. I'm enamored with their talent. I think I've been saying they're a prime candidate to win this next World Cup, and now they might not even qualify. They went into their last group game, home against Serbia, only needing a draw to finish first in the group, qualify automatically. They took a 1-0 lead, two minutes in, Renato Sanchez, but then Tadic equalized before halftime, and Alexander Mitrovic with a 90th-minute winner, 2-1 Serbia, they leapfrog Portugal. They finish first in the group. They qualify for the World Cup. Congratulations to them. Mm -hmm. Portugal finished second and have to go to the scary playoff, like I mentioned. They're going to have to play two one-off matches, do or die, and win both to get to the World Cup. Because the higher seed hosted, how does that work? So of the, the 12 teams, you have six seeded teams, six unseeded, and that dictates who's home for the semifinal. But then when you get to the final, it's the location is, is drawn. So Portugal would have to win an away game to get to the World Cup. This had... Um, it's an obscure reference, but this had a France-Bulgaria 1993 feel to it. Uh, France famously missed out on the World Cup in the United States in remarkable fashion, a game at home against Bulgaria where they only needed a draw, and Bulgaria scored a goal in the last kick of the game after a horrible David Ginola turnover. But So is this just one of those soccer gods at, at the worst possible moment, uh, looking down and saying, you're going you're gonna to do this? Because, I mean, you were... And still are effusive. You, you, yes. this, this is this is Portugal. How could this possibly happen, Masi? Yeah, I mean, Fernando Santos is getting crushed, and rightly so. They were disappointing at the Euros, disappointing in this qualifying campaign. I think what's happened there is when they, they won the Euros in 2016 with this ultra-pragmatic approach, since then, all these exciting attacking players have emerged, the Bernardo Silvas, the Bruno Fernandes, the João Felix, the Diogo Jotas. And so there's a sense of, oh, great, now we don't have to rely on that. We can play more expansively. But Fernando Santos' nature as a manager is still to be pragmatic. So they're sort of caught in the middle of those two, and they haven't really established much of an identity the last couple of years. Plus, they're also dealing with, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole, but we talk about this every week with Ronaldo and Manchester United. When you oh, have Ronaldo, are we blaming Ronaldo? Well, at, is that what's happening? Again, Here we go. At, at this stage of his career, the he, poor guy can't step on a soccer field without being blamed for anything that happens. <laughs> uh, he, you know, th there was a robbery down the street, obviously because we have Cristiano Ronaldo look, on our team. He brings a lot to the table, but he takes uh, some off. You have to make stop. some tactical concessions when you have Ronaldo on your team, so they're suffering from that as well. But still, I, I mean, it's it's mind-boggling. I mean, I rattled off all the attacking players: Cristiano Ronaldo, Bruno Fernandez, Bernardo Silva, João Felix, Diogo Jota. You've got Ruben Diaz at the back. 
back, João Cancelo, one of the best fullbacks in the world. It's it's um, it would, be, would be pretty remarkable if they were to miss a World Cup with that sort of talent. Be an incredible well, failure. I, you know, I mean, they have Cristiano Ronaldo on the field, and we all know. <laughs> I mean, the supply chain—that's Cristiano's fault, right? Is that a problem too? Okay, can we blame that on him? Right, uh, so on. Uh, let me. Luis put it in a certain order here, but I'm going to m- jump around. Uh, Spain had a similar dynamic to Portugal. They went into last group game at home against Sweden, only needing they a draw. A point, right? Yep. It was a nervy game because it stayed 0-0 for a while, and Sweden have some talent, Forsberg, Isaac, uh, Kulusevski. They brought on Vlatan in the second half, uh, but they weren't able. They had some chances, weren't able to score, and then Alvaro Morata got a goal late, uh, 86th minute, and Spain were able to breathe a sigh of relief. They win 1-0. They're off to the World Cup. Sweden go to the playoff. Zlatan getting a lot of criticism uh, because uh, Sweden are really kicking themselves for the game before. They lost away to Georgia. Had they won that game, they would have been able to play for a draw against Spain. Zlatan started that game, was ineffective. He comes on in the second half of this game, was ineffective, and picked up a dumb yellow card, which means he's suspended for the semifinal game of the playoff. And so this international comeback of his is not going that great. There, there's some sentiment of like, hey, man, you, we were doing just fine without you. You can <laughs> sit this one out. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, oh my goodness! Uh, the other team that clinched uh, World Cup berth, uh, France, the defending champs, they did so courtesy of an eight-nil win over Kazakhstan. Uh, Mbappe scoring four Squeaker. goals. Squeaker, all right. And I have to say, I, I love Mbappe, but if I can put my Brazilian hat on here for a second, you know, the way m- millennials on Twitter like to poke holes into Pele's international scoring numbers, and then I have to listen to people gush about a guy scoring four goals against Kazakhstan or, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo breaking records when like 100 of his 110 goals have come against Andorra and the Faroe <laughs> this is, Islands. This is my but, favorite Mossy. But, okay, uh, <laughs> Mbappe scored four goals. First player to score four goals uh, in in a game for France since Jus Fontaine did it in the third place match at the 1958 World Cup he scored four against West Germany to finish that tournament with 13 which remains the record who, who did they play again? Uh, a Kazakhstan Borat <laughs> I, I, I um, just yeah, sure. Jus Fontaine who, who uh, by the way I, I dubbed the Roger Maris of international soccer because he didn't have the greatest career but he somehow scored 13 goals in a World Cup and, and uh, still holds the record to this day um, and so you know taking nothing away from Mbappe, although it was against Kazakhstan. You see the highlights of the game. I mean, the talent is unreal on that guy. So fantastic performance. France off to the World Cup where they are the best team. They're going to be the the favorites. They have the most talent. Uh, I mean, the idea that you have a a squad that was already good enough to win a World Cup and you've added Karim Benzema to it is like insane. So that attack now with Mbappe, Benzema, Benzema, Griezmann, you've got Pogba and N'Golo Kante in the midfield. I mean, it just talent all over the field. He even found a way to Didier Deschamps did to get Kingsley Coman in the lineup. They played him as a wing back in this game. So it, it's ridiculous. But they're having to fight this recent trend where the last three defending World Cup champs and four of the last five, if you take it back to France in 2002, have gone out in the group stage. Right. Uh, so the question Hard. is, can France be the team to sort of break that that uh, well, when I think of France, there's uh, I think of an incredibly disciplined type of uh, national team setup, and nothing could possibly happen uh, for France on or off the field to derail uh, a uh, a World Cup campaign. Well, you know, a pattern with these recent 
defending champions is you have a manager that you think might have overstayed his welcome. It's interesting because you, you win a World Cup, and if the manager wants to stay on, you think, well, of course, you're not going to get rid of a guy that just won a World Cup. But part of me thinks that's the time where you definitely Absolutely. should change managers because it, it's it's awkward to have a guy who just won a World Cup because he then he carries himself with this air of you can't question anything I do because I just won a World Cup, so of course I know what I'm doing. But that sort of breeds complacency. You can be overly loyal to the guys that won you the previous World Cup. And to me, it's just, I don't know. This is like multiple cycles are different, uh, are difficult, which is why, you know, if Greg Berhalter does well, obviously qualifies the team and then they get to the World Cup and they do well, it'll be really interesting to see how people view him as to whether you continue on or has it, has it gotten stale? Yeah. So you have a guy there in Didier Deschamps who's, um, been there for almost a decade and uh, you know so that would be actually the one question mark for france if if, you know if he's the guy you know the only manager to ever win back-to-back world cups you got to go back to vittorio pozzo italy 34 and 38 uh when brazil won it in 58 and 62 they had uh two different managers vicente fiol and aimore moreira um and so uh we'll see if the champs is the guy that can do that i I have some question marks peek behind the curtain not that uh, it's it's that uh illuminating or anything like that but obviously as broadcasters of the World Cup, we are following this very, very closely. And, and, and whether you're broadcasting World Cup or not, you want stars there. You want your big teams there and all that kind of stuff. But we, we would want Cristiano Ronaldo to be part of a World Cup. We would want Zlatan Ibrahimovic to be part of a World Cup. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Um, yeah, so I was going to make a snarky comment about I know, but why are you pulling your punches here? What, do you what? think Fox's coverage is that star-driven, you know, the way we do things? It's... No, I think television's coverage is star-driven. But, but we really lean into the star thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so some of the other European nations that uh, have made it. Belgium, uh, another comfortable qualifying campaign for them. Uh, obviously, lots of talent there. The only issue is their big three is really down to a big two because Eden Hazard is completely fading. So it's really Lukaku and De Bruyne if you're looking at top But top the other Hazard's okay. The other Hazard is okay. Not okay. He's good. He's possibly even great. They've switched. It's an amazing. (laughs) Uh, Croatia, your 2018 runners up. They qualified in dramatic fashion. They went into their last game against Russia needing a win. Russia only needed a draw. Russia played for a draw. They parked the bus the whole game. Very conservative. And it it bit them at the end. It's an own goal in the 81st minute. Uh, Croatia 1-0. So Luka Modric and company runners up in 2018. They're off to the 2022 World Cup. Um, Denmark, who are really having a moment here, fantastic Euros for them, got to the semifinals. And then this qualifying campaign has been bonkers. Nine wins out of nine, 30 goals scored, one conceded. Uh, they were taping this Monday morning. Their last game is uh, today against Scotland. So we'll see if they can finish perfect. Um, speaking of countries rolling up some incredible numbers, Germany, um, they, they made the change after the Euros. Yogi Love goes out. Talk about an international manager who overstayed his welcome. Right. Hansi Flick comes in. Hansi, so far, seven wins out of seven. 31 goals scored, two against. Now, you look at the opponents, not exactly a Batan death march, but <laughs> nevertheless, he's uh, doing what they're supposed to. So those are the seven European nations that are in. I, it's, it's essentially eight because England play today. They only need a point against San Marino. And San Marino, that's like yeah. a guaranteed eight nil win. So, so England are for all intents and purposes in. So there's really only two spots left in terms of the automatic qualifiers. And it, the Italy situation is high drama. They could have put themselves in a really good spot. They were home to Switzerland the last game. 1-1 late. Jorginho missed a penalty. So it finished as a draw. That means 
Italy and Switzerland level on points. Italy have a slight goal difference edge, but they're away to Northern Ireland their last game. Switzerland home to Bulgaria. There's a plausible scenario here if you start playing around with the scores where uh, Italy could find themselves in that playoff, which is amazing. They've had this After rejuvenation. All, yeah, they right? won the Euros. Remember, they missed the last World Cup, yep. so they're battling those demons. Uh, and then another country that missed the last World Cup and is battling those demons is the Netherlands. They could have sealed the deal against Montenegro last time out. But up, they're the Netherlands. so Up 2-0, Memphis the pie with both goals. They somehow surrendered two goals in the last eight minutes. It finished 2-2. Uh, so they didn't clinch. They're still in really good shape. Their last game, they're home to Norway, a Norway side minus Erlen Holland, and all they need is a point. So I, I suspect they'll get it, and Virgil van Dijk and company will be off to the World Cup. I, I'm really worried about Norway because I think that it's Netherlands and then Turkey and Norway are both two points back, and I think Norway is going to be the team left out in the cold here at the end. Norway's going to win the group. Turkey's going to go think to the Turkey's playoff. Gonna, okay. And it, I'm just worried about Erlen Holland that he might be going the way. You talk about us wanting stars at major tournaments. He might be going the way of like a George Best, George Way of just having the misfortune of playing for a country where we're not going to get to see gigs. him on that stage. Gigs. Yeah. Um, so we'll see how that plays out. Yeah, that would that would be a pity. I mean, it's it's just the, you know, the fates of, of where you were born and what your team is at that uh, at that point. Um, which is why we need more uh, World Cups and why we need more people in World Cups, more uh, more teams in World Cups. <laughs> All right, what anything anything else uh, UEFA wise in terms of the qualifying? And you, uh, games are happening today uh, and tomorrow, right? Correct. Okay. Yes. They, they, today, when I say we're, we're recording on Monday, yeah, so we're Monday recording Monday morning. So by the time you hear this, the Italy Switzerland deal will have been sorted. So it, if you listen to this Tuesday morning when it drops, it'll just be the Netherlands uh, situation I, I outlined with them hosting Norway and Turkey also in the mix there. Uh, All right, should we move over to uh, Kona Bowl? Uh, yes. So Brazil have clinched a World <sighs> Cup wow. berth, Thank preserving God. the proud record, the only nation to take part in every World Cup. And by the way, preserving a record, Brazil, they clinched by beating Colombia 1-0 at home, a goal by Ali Wagner's favorite player, Lucas Paqueta. Mm -hmm. uh, Brazil have never lost a home World Cup qualifier in their entire history. In their entire history? Yeah, <laughs> uh, wow. which is a pretty amazing stat. Uh, this qualifying campaign, the numbers look great. Uh, 11 wins, one draw, 34 out of a possible 36 points. I will say the results have been better than the performances. You'd think everybody would be thrilled with those types of numbers, but that's not the case in Brazil. What, what's really hurt Chichi is, of course, you go into any South American qualifying campaign assuming Brazil are going to qualify, but it's usually more of a slog than this, which means, yeah, you're partly thinking about how the team is shaping up for the World Cup, but you're more focused on the here and now of just collecting the points you need. And this qualifying campaign has felt so anticlimactic. Brazil ripped off a bunch of wins early. It became clear they were going to qualify that it's now being viewed entirely through the lens of how the team is shaping up for the World Cup. So, for example, in the last window, Brazil had a game away to Venezuela where they played on this awful pitch. They put out this kind of mishmash lineup, and it was just one of those annoying get-through-it kind of games, and they did. They got three points. They moved on. But that same day, France played Belgium a couple hours earlier in the Nations League semifinal. Incredible game, incredible soccer, both sides. And so rather than looking at it as, hey, Brazil, three more points on the road to Qatar, the, the Brazilian media, the whole narrative was comparing Brazil's performance to that of France and Belgium earlier in the day and saying, well, the way Brazil played this game, they could have never beaten those two teams. So that means that but we're what, way behind. What, so what, What's it, so crazy about that? I mean, you you put yourself on an upper echelon. And, and so when you, when you beat teams, that's all fine and well. But ultimately, for Brazil, it's not about qualifying for the World Cup. It's about winning World Cups. And in order to win a World Cup, you have to go through those other teams. So I think it's logical, not just for press, for, but for anybody out there to try to use you know some sort of 
of better balanced type of comparison with the best out there. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I agree. Uh, the other thing that's been damning for Chichi is um, <laughs> there's all this concern about how Brazil stacks up against the top European nations. But for the past few years, at least there's been this sense of, well, they're clearly the kings of South America. But even that's not really true right now because Argentina have been lights out. They're unbeaten in 26 games. They haven't lost since a 2-0 defeat to Brazil in the 2019 Copa America semifinals. They obviously beat Brazil in Brazil in the Copa America final this past summer, which we covered. Uh, and so there's a sense that Argentina might be surpassing Brazil as the best team in South America, which sets up a delicious matchup tomorrow night. Argentina hosts Brazil. Argentina with a win in that game, and if some results go their way, they could clinch a World Cup berth as well, which how sweet would that be? Winning a Copa America title in Brazil and then beating Brazil to clinch a World Cup berth. They could really cement, like I said, the fact that they've turned the tables there in Brazil and become the best team. They're coming off a 1-0 away win over Uruguay, uh, which was a bit of a smash and grab. Uh, Angel Di Maria scored a great goal early, but then Argentina kind of sat on their lead. Uruguay had a million chances. They, they were somewhat fortunate there, but they've played great otherwise. Argentina's playing some really lovely soccer. Messi didn't start this game. He's been banged up. He came on for the last 15 minutes, but all signs point to him starting against Brazil. Uh, Casemiro is suspended for that game. So that's uh, tomorrow night. They've, they've put that game in San Juan. It's not in Buenos Aires. They put it in some small city, some tiny bandbox stadium, 25,000 people. I don't know if they think that's going to be a more intimidating environment Maybe. for Brazil. But uh, so, uh, but yeah, so in, in South America, Brazil are through. Argentina are qualified in all but name, you know, <laughs> right. in everything but name only. So they're going to get there. Uh, and then you've got Ecuador in third place. And then it, the incredible scrum for the remaining Copa spots. You've got Chile, Colombia, and Uruguay all on 16 points. The top four make it automatically. Fifth place goes to a playoff. Uh, Chile, who had won only one of their first 10, have now ripped off three straight victories. Uh, so our buddy Johnny Araya feeling good about that. Uruguay have gone the other way. Only one point from their last four games. To be fair, that's a game away to Brazil, two against Argentina and home to Colombia. So a difficult stretch for them, but it's got Oscar Tabatas in all sorts of trouble. They play away to Bolivia uh, tomorrow. If they lose that game, I think Tabatas is going to be gone. They already have Diego Aguirre lined up as a replacement. It would be a really unceremonious end for Tabatas, a guy who's had a phenomenal career, but it seems to be trending that way. Uruguay do have an easier schedule down the stretch. Colombia have a fairly easy schedule, so I think they'll definitely make it. Chile have the hardest schedule of those teams but yeah it's going to be it's going to come down to the wire here in south america brazil and argentina comfortable as you'd expect but everything else is still very much up in the to air. play for as they say all right cool um all right, a couple other uh, news items here uh, and, and look uh, obviously there are other qualifiers world cup qualifiers that are going on around the world we're not going to go through everything uh we hit the uh we hit comfortable and we hit uefa and we hit uh Concacaf. and there's certainly other ones that are going but we can only do so much on this podcast, but you can uh, you can find those. But a couple of news and notes uh, around, uh, and you mentioned earlier, Danny Alves uh, returning to uh, to Barcelona. What do you think of that? Is that just a, a grasping at straws type of uh, uh, moment, or w w why is this happening? I like it from a Brazil perspective. Danny Alves still is a very good player. Yep. Now he he went back to Brazil, played for São Paulo, and really carried himself with this air like he was doing everybody a favor by going back home, which really alienated the Brazilian media. And so they've been excessively harsh on his performances, but he played much better at Sao Paulo than he's given credit for. He also was excellent at the Olympics, captained Brazil to the gold medal. And if you want to go back a couple of years, uh, he captained Brazil to the 2019 Copa America title 
and was phenomenal in that tournament, was voted the player of the tournament. So I still think he has a lot to give. Right back is a position that I think is still unsettled for Brazil. So if Danny Alves were to play well over the course of 2022 and be in good physical shape come November 22, I would still want him on that squad. Uh, for Brazil, and I think he it could be a real benefit. I to, would too. I, I think uh, he's a great player at, and still a great player. At, so. at, at 30 years, 38 years of age, it's amazing the shape that he's kept himself in. For Barcelona, look, he, he's playing for, for nothing. I mean, they, he understood their financial situation, so he agreed to basically play for free. And so Xavi, his former teammate, feels like having somebody like him in the dressing room is a positive. It's a little weird at a time where Barcelona are looking to rebuild to bring in a 38-year-old. The interesting thing is from a U.S. perspective, like I said, Mexicans... We're looking to have a go at, at the U.S. and say, well, that shows you that Sergino Des isn't that good. But I saw a lot of U.S. fans putting a positive spin on this and saying, what better guy for Sergino Des to learn from? He's going to function as a mentor to Des. I don't so, think uh, Sergino Des has any mentors. I don't think he cares about that. I don't. I think he beats to his own drum, and it's. I don't think that that's happening. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, you, you mentioned uh, Xavi, and so in, in the, the line of these great players that are now trying their hand uh, at, uh, at coaching and is managing, we hear that Steven Gerrard uh, now is new head coach of Aston Villa. What is that one? Is that uh, tickle your fancy there? Yeah, it's an interesting hire, and I think if you're a Liverpool fan, this is a positive development because... This is a process? Yeah, I mean, he he wouldn't, he's not, they're not ready yet to bring him to Liverpool because obviously they hope Jurgen Klopp stays for another two or three years, but he's kind of the guy they have an eye on as a potential replacement there. So having him come to the Premier League, manage a fairly big club, Aston Villa, if he does well there, I think that's the perfect stepping stone in well, wait, two or three wait, years wait, wait, wait. for him. So to, Liverpool, I mean, why wouldn't, they want Jurgen Klopp to stay there another 10 years or 15 no, years or something I, I, like No, of that. course, in a perfect world, but they just, I think, they get the sense that's not going to happen, that he's going to... Oh, from him? From yeah, him? Oh, okay, yeah, got it, he's got it, got gonna got it, got it. So they just need Germany to in a World make Cup sure they have a succession type of thing exactly. when that happens. Okay, yeah, got so it. I think that's this is a good sort of stepping stone towards that. If he does well at Villa, I suspect two or three years from now, Klopp goes off to coach Germany, let's say, and Gerard steps in. Well, will he do well at uh, Villa? I mean, uh, this is obviously a, a, you know, a, a big assignment, uh, so far, his coaching career has been encouraging. I th think he did a really nice job at Rangers. So, and there's there's talent there, at Aston Villa. I know they sold Grealish, but they turned around, they spent that money, and and they've just had a lot of injuries so far this season. So, I think their place in the table is a little bit misleading. They're better than that, and so he should be able to get them up and 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 come out smelling like roses there. So, yeah, I think this one is intriguing. All right, cool. Uh, well, it's you know it's the uh, the dance card is starting to fill up when it comes to Qatar with uh, teams that are qualifying and putting themselves in positions to qualify and all that kind of stuff and it will continue on this week with uh, the the, uh, the qualifiers that are happening and you know as you mentioned uh, some of those teams that uh, that are going to be there next uh, November and December in Qatar as we get to the one year out date this Sunday or something like that. It's amazing what it's going to be. All right. Um, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, oh, yeah, it's time for Ask Alexi. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, Right now, you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details.
All right, we're back, and it's time uh, for Ask Alexi, where you uh, either send a message out there on the social media platforms uh, using that hashtag, Ask Alexi, or you use our podcast hotline. You know it, 657-549-2297. That's 657-549-2297. And we're really happy uh, that so many of you are using that. Like I said, I... I have no problem if you you know want to send tweets or Facebook or Instagram and stuff like that, but it gets you it gives you a little opportunity to kind of breathe and expand in uh, in I guess what would be for some generation a a newer type of way of getting your point across, but for my generation it's a more traditional uh, and classic type of way of getting your point across, where you actually have to formulate sentences and hopefully you do it in a uh, concise and hopefully an entertaining uh, way. We had a couple of questions. Uh, what's the first one, Mossy? First one is Billy from Fontana. Okay, let's see what uh, Billy from Fontana has to say. Hi, Alexi and Mossy. I was wondering uh, if I can ask you guys a two, uh, two questions. Uh, the first one would be, how do you think Bruce Arena would do as a manager overseas uh, in Europe, to be more specific, any of the top five uh, leagues? Uh, and also, um, do you believe the problem that the Galaxy is having is because of Chris Klein and the personnel that he has brought in? Uh, and my name is Billy, and I'm from Fontana, and big fan of the podcast. Thank you, guys, uh, and I hope I, I hope I can get you guys to answer these questions. Bye. All right, Billy from Fontana. That's uh, that's good, uh, and I love the fact that you reiterated who you are and where you are from. So it's the the message is getting through. Um, okay, so when it comes to Bruce Arena, one of the legendary American coaches, his his resume, other than his international experience, which was incredibly successful, but his resume resume is with uh, from a club perspective all domestic uh, in terms of Major League Soccer and college uh, soccer, and I, there was a time where I would have been much more bullish about a Bruce Arena. But the whole the the whole narrative and concept and um you know the whole situation regarding and and um like Ted Lasso and you know the Bob Bradley situation all of that kind of stuff kind of highlighted I think some of the challenges that American coaches have, and even Jesse Marsh in the way that he is, the way that he is seen or the way that he is drawn uh, out, uh, out there. And, you know, some of it is okay. And some of it just rolls off his, certainly their back or, or, or my back, but some of it I think can be problematic. And if you were ever looking for a, American in the most American sense of the word when it comes to a coach, it would be Bruce Serena. You know, I love him. Uh, as I've said, I think he's a really good coach. He knows a whole lot more about X's and O's than he lets on or that people give him credit for. He does not suffer fools. But I do think that there is a uh, a way that he looks at himself, the way that he w- looks at the world, the way that he looks at the soccer world that I'm not sure would would play um, other places. And so it's it's kind of like being a, a politician if you are an American soccer coach. You really have to kind of 
understand the lay of the land and you have to win hearts and minds and you have to behave in a way that doesn't betray who you are as an American soccer coach, but also makes you at least outwardly appear more accepting and cosmopolitan and gracious, if you will. And that's not something that I associate with Bruce Arena. Now, I'm not saying that he wouldn't be successful because I think he finds a way ultimately to be successful anywhere he goes if if he has the time uh, to do so. But I don't see, especially Bruce Arena in 2021, being as, as flexible as I think he and others may need to be going forward. So it's not that he wouldn't do well. Um, I just think that he might have more challenges now, as great as he is um, and as smart as he is, I think he would have um, more challenges now. Uh, when it comes to your second question there, Billy, well, hold on, what, hold on. What do you think of uh, Bruce Serena in, in the context of a, you know, a top five league over in Europe? Yeah, I agree with you. The, the moment passed. I know he felt like after the 2002 World Cup, getting the U.S. to the quarterfinals, there might have been some opportunities there. He was disappointed he didn't get better offers than he did. Um, but now, yeah, he's been such a American soccer lifer here that at, at this point in his career, it'd be weird to see him try that. As far as um, Chris Klein, uh, who you mentioned, uh, for those that don't know, Chris Klein is the president of the Los Angeles Galaxy and has been you know, the, the leader and the architect, if you will, of their success over the last decade, shall we say. Um, but also uh, of the, uh, the failures, especially over the last four, four years or, or so. And how much, I mean, this is an age-old type of question. How much credit, either positively or negatively, do you attribute to somebody in that position? You know, within that time, you know, there have been vice presidents and technical directors and all the different uh, sporting directors, all the different uh, positions that we have that have put kind of a buffer between Chris Klein and, you know, the head the, the head coach. And so how much responsibility do you lay at, the, at their feet? Ultimately, Chris Klein, um, like anybody in that position, and I was in that position before, uh, the buck stops with Chris Klein. So if things aren't going well, and his responsibility is to have a good team on the field and to monetize it off the field. The team has not been good, although I think they got better this year uh, for now a number of years. And off the field, I don't see their books, so I don't know what's going on. But you know, just in terms of the numbers when it comes to uh, people in the stands, it has not looked good. Now, all of that does not mean that uh, that he's not doing his job or that AEG, which owns the Los Angeles Galaxy, doesn't look at Chris Klein as valuable. Now, because he's a former player, because he is you know higher profile, obviously there is a tension on him when the team does not do well. And it's a matter of whoever is in charge of making these decisions, is it time to clean house? And when I say to clean house, to get rid of everybody uh, going forward. And maybe there's a, a fair argument. So, do I blame Chris Klein? Yes, in as much as he is the leader of the Los Angeles Galaxy. And it falls on him and his shoulders when the Los Angeles Galaxy fails or is unsuccessful. Whether he is directly involved or not is irrelevant. Okay? Ultimately, you are the leader 
It's your responsibility to fix it. And I think I think he actually did some things this year to try to fix it. And as I said, I think it's heading in a better uh, better direction. And you are a sum not just of of what you have done in the last year. You're a sum of, in his case, totality in almost a, a decade, if you will, of of leadership. But you know, again, it goes back to Janet Jackson, as it always does. What you did before, yes, it matters, but at some point you got to be able to do it on a consistent basis going forward. And it has not been good over the last uh, few years when it comes to the Los Angeles Galaxy under uh, under Chris Klein. But I don't think he's I don't think he's going anywhere because I think if that were if that was going to happen, it would have happened before. Uh, next, Mossy. Next is Keating from Indiana. Hey, Alexi. Hey, Mossy. This is Keating from Evansville, Indiana. Um, first off, I just want to say thank you, Alexi. You took time to take a photo with me before the game um, on Saturday night and I, or Friday night. And I just wanted to say uh, that really meant a lot. And you made that night much more memorable. Um, my question is, do you think after the foul on Aronson that that just emphasizes the need um, even more for VAR and CONCACAF? Um, it seems like it'd be a lot easier to do with CONCACAF just with so many of the other teams having national team stadiums and already being utilized in the MLS. What do you guys think? Thank you. All right. A couple of things. Uh, whenever we mention Kalamazoo, I, I say that it's or Derek Jeter grew up Evansville, Indiana. That is, uh, I believe, the birthplace of Don Mattingly, another Yankee legend. Oh, really? It's also the the university there. Their basketball uniform. They wear long sleeves, or they wear sleeves for some reason on their basketball. That's sacrilege, uniform. right? Aren't you? Yeah. Supposed so to... the two things. When I think of Evansville, I think that's of what you sleeves think sleeves and with the basketball jerseys. And I'm sure Keating Don would Matt. tell you that there's much more uh, that goes on there. It's also worth mentioning. Luis Aguilar tried a different approach this week. He had the correct names in the right. rundown. Well, so we're we're. Nothing if not growing and evolving, okay? Um, okay, so good question there, uh, there Keating. And, and uh, before I get to, to your, the specifics of your question here, I will say, Mossy, and this is a phenomenon that has happened over the last couple of years as we have done this podcast and it has, has grown. When I am out there and I'm you know, meeting different people, as I did Keating and so many wonderful people in, uh, in Cincinnati in that setting, it is amazing to me. Um, how many people start off our conversations with, I love the pod. I listen to the pod. How's Mossy? How's the weeds? All, you know, and honestly, they, they bring up everybody's uh, name and it is, not to get too corny about it, it is this, this family. But the amount of people that I run into that, that have this pod as part of their, their weekly um, diet of soccer, it never fails to, uh, to make me so happy and, and, um, that that it is that it is having an impact that's uh, that's great, and so people are appreciating all the work that uh, you and everybody here on the pod uh, are doing, and so we we will continue to do that, and it's nice to have that kind of affirmation um, from a, a human perspective, and especially after the last couple of years, we haven't been <laughs> been able to be on the road to have that um, that contact and that interaction is very very cool. All right, so you know, first off, Mossy, give the folks because I was in the stadium, okay. And while there was a, a monitor that was rose back, I wasn't able to see the broadcast of the game. And so when things were happening, some of the things, as we know from a security and safety perspective, sometimes they don't show stuff in the stadium. So give people an idea. I, I saw this after the fact, but give people an idea in case they didn't see it or they want to make sure we, we know what we're talking about when it comes to this moment. 
Yeah, I mean, if it's the play, I, I'm pretty sure he's alluding to in the second half, Mexico was so frustrated that they were getting worked over. And so there was a play where Chaka Rodriguez and Brendan Aronson fighting for a ball near the sideline there got tangled up and Chaka Rodriguez stood over Aronson for way longer than he should have and then shoved him in the face. And so it was a, uh, a rake it was a rake. It was a, 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 a wrestling type of move where he raked his ar- raked his eyes as far as uh, I could see it. But it did bring up, you know, the question about VAR. And as we know, um, controversially, CONCACAF decided for this octagonal that they would not be having VAR, not because of anything other than they were worried that some of the places uh, where these games were going to be taking place, that from a a technical uh, perspective, they weren't going to be able to implement it. And in an effort to be fair, if if one place can't do it, that's a that's a problem. And so they said, if one can't do it, or if they all can't do it, then we're then nobody's getting uh, to do it. Problem is that it, it's happening in a in a moment now where VAR is ubiquitous in the games that we see, most of the games that we see, and certainly at the higher levels. And this is you know qualifying for a World Cup. This is the final level of qualifying for a World Cup in uh, in Concacaf. Do I think that it should be there? Yes, but I completely understand Concacaf saying. Well, we th- we think it should be there too. We just can't do it because the technology and the ability to implement that technology in some of these stadiums is is not there, and so we can't do it. And yes, I it would irritate me probably even more if one game had VAR and another game didn't have VAR. But I also you know, we talk about on this pod a lot about FIFA members. We talk about money. We talk about how so many members, um, whether it's members of FIFA from a bigger perspective or when you're looking at this from a CONCACAF perspective, how much they rely on money that comes from both FIFA and and uh, and their confederation. In this case, it would be uh, CONCACAF. But in order to have these these stadiums and these environments either new or retrofitted, it requires more Money and some of these places, despite their abilities on the field and the, the teams they have and the players that they have, you know these stadiums are antiquated and they're not able to do it. So I look at this Keating as saying, yeah, it would be great to have VAR, but in order to have it, it requires more money. In order to get more money, you have to do things that are going to generate more money. So when I come at you and say a World Cup every two years is going to generate more money for all of these uh, these members, I don't want to hear anything if you also want to have VAR at all of these uh, these stadiums, whether they're retrofitted or uh, or whether they're new. So yes, Keating, it would have been great to have it. Uh, would VAR have looked at this particular eye rake that, uh, that happened? Yeah. Yeah, probably, but I, I tend to I tend to see games that that don't have VAR, and in this context, like I said, all of the games don't have VAR. Is that it all equals out in the end? So, believe me, there are no angels on that field when it comes to a U.S. Mexico game. And we can, you know, we can get on our high horse all we want, but there are plenty of of dark arts on both sides. And I think about how I would have had to adjust had I played in a VAR world. And it would have been absolutely an adjustment. The things that I could get away with when there wasn't VAR as opposed to with VAR, it is, it is night and day. And knowing that little things that would always go unnoticed just because there's not enough eyes out there that could be 
seen and replayed and adjudicated, eh, that that would that would change the way that uh, that anybody's played. But you know, for everyone that screams and yells about VAR, this was old school. This was traditional. This was classic soccer. And now you're screaming about the fact that you don't have uh, the technology. So Keating, I, I understand what, exactly what you're saying here. What, what, Masi, what do you think? I was say the, the team lamenting that there wasn't a VAR there is Mexico because it would have been great to have Chaka Rodriguez sent off. Oh, listen to you. Boy, oh boy. Masi down on El Tree. Down <laughs> on El Tree. Well, what, let's see. They're going to go up to Edmonton and smash Canada 3 right. nothing. Uh, uh, with three goals by Chaka Rodriguez. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, what else? Incidentally, uh, in all seriousness, with Chaka Rodriguez struggling in that right back position being unsettled, Julian Araujo choosing Mexico could be a real blessing. Maybe he did say, he said, listen, I got an opportunity. <laughs> all right. So. All um, right. Uh, and finally, we'll end with a fun one. At Rally Mullet asks, so Eric Winaldi, you know Eric Winaldi. I've heard of him, yes. Says it's pronounced Pulisic, C-H sound. Oh, what say you, Alexi Lalas? This is a mon monumental answer for me. I say that Eric standing on principle, um, and when I say principle, just being, you know, an elitist uh, type of um, what he thinks is, is, you know, cultured and cosmopolitan is... BS. Okay. We went through this when Christian Pulisic came up. We went through it. We asked him what he wanted to be called, which we always do. And unless it's something that is completely unpronounceable, all right, we usually defer uh, to the actual player, at which point that's what he said he wanted to be called. And so that's what we have always called him. Now, does it mean that in his, in his native uh, tongue that it wouldn't have a different pronunciation? Yeah, but this is a kid that grew up in, in in Pennsylvania, okay? And so, yeah, you can pronounce it different ways if you want to, but this was the agreed-upon way that Christian Pulisic had told us. And so that's what we're going with. And I don't think that that's... I don't think that that is wrong. We come from a country and culture that has... Americanized all sorts of words out there, and you can say, "Well, that was right or that was wrong," but you can't say that it, that it, uh, that it hasn't been done. And ultimately, hey, by the way, in this day and age where everybody's telling me I have to call this person this and this person this, and you got to use this phrase and you can't use this phrase and all that all that kind of stuff, when the actual person says, "This is what I want to be called." I'm going to call him what he wants to be called. If he wants to come up and say, no, I want to be called Christian Pulisic from now on, fine, then that's what we'll do. But until I hear it from Christian, who the hell cares what Eric Winalda says? What's interesting is there's another issue with the pronunciation. Uh, I say Pulisic, and it seems like the emphasis should be it's Pulisic. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a whole nother thing. I mean... So why do you why do you know. have the I've accent just, on the first syllable? I've just gotten used to it, and it's hard to Christian Pulisic, Christian Pulisic, 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 Pulisic. Yeah, yeah, I say Pulisic. Pulisic. Second syllable, Christian Pulisic. Now I'm gonna now it's gonna sit in my head all day. Yeah, I'm calling him Christian Pulisic. Okay, K at the end and accent on the second syllable. I mean that that puts you at odds with Eric Winalda. Are you comfortable with that? I want to be just fine. <laughs> I love you, buddy, because I know he's listening. <laughs> what else, Mossy? 
That is it. That is it. All right. Well, thank you so much uh, for all your questions. Like I said, use that hashtag Ask Alexi when you're doing it, I guess, in the more traditional way of social media out there, Twitter and uh, Instagram and Facebook and all that kind of stuff. And then we do have our pot, uh, our uh, podcast hotline 657-549-2297. That's 657-549-2297. Do use that even if you send us questions in, in, uh, in both ways. Uh, I think you'll be really you know, interested and pleased in the way uh, that the uh, the the hotline is working. So definitely do that. All right. Uh, we're coming to the end of the pod. And uh, when we come back, I will have my one for the road. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, Right now, you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. All right, we're back, and it's time for my one for the road. Uh, it's about U.S.-Mexico. I think it's appropriate given the week that uh, that we have had here. I did uh, a couple of interview, interviews when I was in Cincinnati. There are you know, some documentaries that are coming out uh, relative to U.S.-Mexico. And so obviously me and my generation and you know, Kobe Jones was there and Frankie Haydick and all sorts of different people talking about this incredible rivalry, which, as I said, I think is the best international rivalry in the world. You can at me or come at me all you all you want, and I will defend it as uh, as such. But, you know, I, we, the the animosity between these two teams and between these players is something that fascinates people and you are asked to talk about it and how it manifested and, and how it grew and how it evolved. And, you know, the, the word hate is thrown around a lot. And I, I probably have, have been guilty at times of, of using it. And I just think that, especially nowadays, where it, it, it seems so easy to throw it out, and yet the, the realities of what that means, especially nowadays, um, make me not want to to use that in any sense and certainly not in the sense of a of a soccer game which ultimately it is uh, you know having said that i i was really interested in the way that that greg berhalter framed this and you don't want to diminish it in any way because it 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 shouldn't be diminished it is huge it is a huge rivalry and it is incredibly emotional and passionate on both sides, and as we said before, it 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 brings and incorporates in all of these different aspects of our countries and cultures. And and when it comes, you know, to the the uh, the weaving of our two countries and the proximity that we have, and the you know the way that it impacts um, you know socially and uh, you know politics and sports and entertainment and all that kind of stuff. It is, it is a big deal, but you know, I don't hate you know, Mexico and I don't hate the Mexican national team. And this was brought to my attention over, um, over the last couple of days. My mom, who I've talked about before, and, and you know, she sees everything and reads everything when it comes to soccer. She had sent me a, uh, 
an email because she had read Greg Berhalter's comments and she had read them in uh, the New York the New York Times, in which he said, we fiercely dislike Mexico's soccer team. And she, she even that, I mean, he didn't say that they that they hate him in the times in the past. We've said, oh, I hate them. And, and I, I know a lot of it's kind of hyperbole and it's kind of fueling the the um, the fire there. But she even when she saw that didn't like it. And I and I had to point out that, you know, here's a case. You can say what you want about the New York Times or anybody right now where you can just take a piece and one quote and it can not necessarily give you the full context of what is happening. And I, and I appreciate that Greg Berhalter made a point when he was talking about this rivalry and talking about this game and talking after this game about what this meant of differentiating between the incredibly competitive nature and fierce rivalry um, and distaste, in his words, dislike of the opponent in a game relative to the people of Mexico or Mexican-Americans uh, or Mexicans, because that is a whole different animal and completely different. And so I actually had to give the full quote to my mom who only read this so that she understood the context of what Greg Berhalter had said and was saying when it came to it. And I think Greg Berhalter recognized that with all of this passion, with all of this emotion, it can get to a point where it can actually get detrimental and it can get even dangerous. And to make sure that as we go forward to be distinct and to differentiate the difference between disliking, uh, any distaste, any even hatred, if you want to use that word, um, in the competitive and athletic sense that exists in this rivalry, as opposed to, you know, our friends to the South who we know, as I said before, are so much a part of what our country is in, uh, in 2021. And, you know, to give you an idea of, uh, about this, and I think I've said this before, over the years now, I have met some of these players that were fierce rivals that I just wanted to, you know, kick and to beat every single time. And we've had wonderful moments out and we've had drinks and we've talked about things and laughed about things. And I've, I've met their, you know, their, their families and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And you, it humanizes them, uh, in a way, having said all of that from a competitive standpoint, um, don't think for a second that at 51, if they called us together and had us play a game right now as these 50-year-old somethings, that we wouldn't want to beat the shit out of each other and and win for our country and for our pride. Um, but that that stops when that whistle blows. And um, I just hope that we never lose uh, lose sight of that. Because it, it can very, very easily spill into something that we that we don't want it to be as great as the rivalry is. And as I said, I think it's the greatest international rivalry uh, in soccer. I think we have, for the most part, been able to avoid losing track um, and losing perspective of what it ultimately is. So anyway, that's my uh, that's my one for uh, one for the road. Uh, I know my mom's listening again. So love you, mom. And uh, keep them coming. She sees everything. She hears everything. She, as I've said before, 
your word is gold when it comes it to- It was until this Squid Game debacle. Well, it was just a bit much for her, okay? I mean, she, she's willing to give you another chance for your next uh, recommendation when it comes to, to what to watch. We haven't really, you know, since Squid Game, we really haven't had that next big thing that's come out, right? I mean, there hasn't been a, a kind of social phenomenon when it comes to uh, watching stuff, has there? No, no. I actually yeah. have a movie I'm planning to see what? today. Uh, Belfast. It's, Are you uh, seeing it in the in the movie theater? In the movie theater. They still exist? You're going to go to a movie theater? Yes. Uh, it's this coming-of-age story, a boy growing up in Belfast in the late 60s uh, during the Troubles. I read that Patrick Radden Keefe book, Say Nothing, recently about the Troubles, so I'm very interested in that topic now. So it's getting great reviews, so I have high hopes for Wow. All right. Well, we, we expect a review uh, next week. All right. Listen, thank you so much uh, for tuning in, for listening, for watching, for reviewing, for subscribing, for rating, for downloading, for doing all the different things that you do out there on the different platforms. As I, as I said earlier, you know, the interactions that I have had, uh, they, they warm the cockles of my redheaded heart that, that we are even being uh, acknowledged and listened to by, uh, by people out there just amazes me. And uh, it's an incredible honor and privilege to be able to give you this uh, each and every week. And hopefully we're getting better at it uh, and hopefully we're giving you what you want on a consistent basis. But it doesn't matter if you don't, uh, if you don't partake and that there are so many people out there um, that uh, find time for the State of the Union podcast. It makes me very, very happy. So thank you much uh, to everybody out there and thank you everybody behind the scenes that puts it together each and every uh, each and every week because you know we just sit here and babble on into the uh, microphone everybody else does the real the real hard work all right we will be back again next week same time same place here on the state of the union and until then and as always size the day <laughs>